G'day, my name is Jeff, and it's my great privilege to start a new Bible series with you today. We're starting together in the book of James. We'll be looking at it together for about the next three months or so. Today, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Can I encourage you to have your Bible open at James chapter 1? We're going to read the passage, think about what it means and how it applies to us. Uh, if you're um, if you've got the outline, that may be, that'll be helpful to you as well from the um, order of service that you've downloaded during the week. Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us your word. We pray that as we look now at this book of James that you will help us to, to, to live our lives as genuine Christians, uh, not just uh, believing in Jesus, but uh, having a faith in Jesus that changes us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last couple of weeks, I've been on holiday on the south coast of New South Wales, and we're in a place called Batemans Bay. There are about 40,000 people who live in the general area of Batemans Bay. On the two Sundays we were there, we went to church, of course, uh, on the first Sunday, we went to the Presbyterian Church in Batemans Bay, and there were about uh, 15 people in the church, nearly all elderly. On the second Sunday, we went to what we understand is the biggest church in Batemans Bay, the Baptist Church, and there were around 40 people at church, all elderly. From what I can tell, out of 40,000 people in the area, on any given Sunday, you might have just a couple of hundred people in church. It's maybe half of 1%. Uh, one day, while we were on our holiday, my daughter wanted to go fishing, and so I took her to, onto a pier, and, and she was fishing, and I was trying to read a book while she fished. But there was a, a young man there who was, who was pretty persistent in wanting to talk to me. So I, I put down my book and I talked to him. We, we chatted for a while and then he asked me, he asked me, what do you do? I said, I'm a Presbyterian minister. He said, what's that? I said, well, I work for a church, I look after a church, I spend time with people and I teach them about Jesus from the Bible. Do you know what he said? He said this. He said, I know nothing about that. For many people, and I suspect the number is increasing, for many people in Australia, the idea of God, it just doesn't, doesn't enter their minds. They don't know anything about God or Jesus or church or Presbyterian ministers. They live entirely for this world, for the here and now for what they can see and hear and taste and touch. In Batemans Bay, that may well account for something like 39,800 of the 40,000 people. 99.5%. God never even enters into the equation of their lives. I wonder, what difference do you think that makes? Do you think it makes any difference? 
do, do you think it makes any difference to your life to believe there is a God? To believe that Jesus really died for our sins and rose again? Does it make any difference to life? Well, today we start this new series on the New Testament letter of James, and, and I hope this book will be helpful to us because it's a very, it's a very practical book. It's a book that calls on us not just to believe in God, not just to believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. It's a book that calls on us to, to be different, to, to live as if it's true, to, to, to let our faith work itself out in action, in, in life. Well, let's dive in and we'll have a look at the book together. The author starts off by introducing himself. He says that his name is James. And he says that he's a servant of God and of Jesus. So who, who is this James person? Uh, there are a few people called James in, uh, mentioned in the New Testament. It's a reasonably common name uh, at the time. But there are really only two uh, in the New Testament who would have had their letter included as part of the New Testament. Uh, so there's James the Apostle, that's the, the, the brother of John and the close friend of Jesus. Uh, he certainly, if he, if he wrote a letter, it would be included in the New Testament. But, but the thing about James, this James, he was killed very early on, uh, almost certainly too early to have written this letter. So by far the most likely person is the second James, and, and, and that is the James who was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, this James became a very important leader in the Jerusalem church. Interesting, though, as he introduces himself, James doesn't call himself a brother of Jesus. No, no, he, he says he's a servant, literally a slave of Jesus. And, and, and notice what he calls his brother. He calls him... The Lord, that's, well, in context, that's equivalent to saying Jesus is God, calling on Jesus as Lord. And he also calls him Christ. Christ, that's, that's the Messiah, the promised king, the, the, the ruler of God's eternal kingdom. Have a look with me at James chapter 1 and verse 1. James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what? I read this introduction and to me, to me it actually, it helps convince me that Jesus is real. Let me try to explain it. I have a brother. His name is Ben. Now, if Ben were to write a letter, he wouldn't describe himself as my servant. And, and he wouldn't describe me as Lord and he wouldn't describe me as Christ. Why? Well, because Ben knows me. He, he grew up with me. He could tell you plenty of stories, stories that would make you not even want to have me as a friend or a minister, let alone as a Lord and a Christ. James grew up with Jesus. James knew Jesus all through his life. James was no doubt very disappointed as Jesus left the family and headed off on his itinerant ministry. James was no doubt jealous of Jesus. You see just a hint of that in John chapter 7 where James and his brothers, John says they don't, they don't believe in Jesus and they, they criticise him. They say, oh, you want to become a public figure, do you? And you can understand the jealousy. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine having a brother who never sins? I mean, 
Yeah, you'd hate him, I think, wouldn't you? For a long time, James didn't believe in Jesus. So, so what changed his mind? What turned James from jealous brother to humble servant? What turned him from unbelief to believe? To, to, to believe? What, what turned him from thinking his brother was, I don't know, annoying to thinking of him as the Lord and Christ? The Apostle Paul gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. He says, the risen Jesus appeared to James. James saw his brother, who had been killed, by being nailed to a cross. He saw him alive again. James saw the resurrected Jesus. That changed everything. From then on, he devoted the rest of his life to telling everyone who would listen about his brother who is Lord and Christ. I read this and I have to say, it helps me to believe. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. I can't find a better explanation for what happened to James. Here is a guy who knew Jesus, knew exactly the truth about Jesus, nothing to gain by, by serving Jesus, and yet here he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, James introduces himself, and next he addresses and he greets his readers. And he describes them as the 12 tribes. That, of course, is a reference to the Old Testament, uh, to Israel, the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. But they're not in Israel, as James writes. Instead, he says, they've been scattered among the nations. Now, put it together, and James is probably writing to Jews who had become Christians and were in the Jerusalem church that he'd been looking after, but then they had to run away from Jerusalem. Uh, probably at the time when Stephen was martyred, there was this terrible persecution against the church and the Jewish Christians had to scatter away from Jerusalem. Still in verse 1. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, as you can imagine, things must have been tough for these readers. They were religious refugees. They'd had to leave everything behind. All their friends, all their family, all their stuff, their, their, their homes, everything had to be left behind in Jerusalem as they ran away. They had to come to new countries with new customs, maybe with foreign languages. Um, in Acts chapter 11, it also talks about how there was a famine at this time. And so it's quite possible these, these Christians, they were struggling without family support, without uh, their jobs without everything that they'd had. They, they were struggling to even put food on the table. Commentator Doug Moose says this. If, as we think, the Christians to whom James writes have been forced to leave Jerusalem and establish new homes in Syria and northern Palestine, most of them would be facing tough financial situations as well as social dislocation and even ostracism. It was no wonder then that James straightaway talks about trials that his readers are facing. He talks about tough times that they're in. But it's interesting what James does. He doesn't say, oh, you, you poor things. He doesn't say, how terrible for you. No, no way. He says they ought to be thrilled by their situation. The tough times that they're facing should bring them joy. And why? Because it's good for their Christian faith. Suffering tests their faith, and that will produce perseverance, endurance, sticking power. 
And James calls on his readers in the face of their trials to keep on sticking with Jesus and, and as they stick with Jesus and persevere to grow in him, in their perseverance to draw closer to Jesus, uh, to, to become more mature, more complete in him. Verse 2. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James wants his readers to see their tough times as opportunities, opportunities to grow in Christian maturity. And, well, it's true what he says, isn't it? Christians do grow through tough times. You can see this proved over and again, over again, right through the world. Christians who are doing it tough... Christians who are facing persecution, Christians who, <coughs> who, who, who have to pay a price for being Christian, they grow strong in their faith. But Christians who have it all, well, we stay weak and flabby in faith. Now, it partly comes down to what James says here. Trials test your faith. They, they, they make you think it through carefully. As you face trials for being a Christian, as, you, as it costs you to be a Christian, as you make sacrifices or suffer, it makes you ask the question, is this real or not? A am I a Christian or not? Is trusting Jesus worth this pain? Is it worth this cost? Trials test your faith. And as you put Jesus to the test, well, you find he comes through. You discover again this is real. And so you, you grow in perseverance. You're strengthened. Your faith grows. And, and you, see, you see more and more that all this stuff here on earth, all of this so-called cost, it's just for a moment. Jesus gives us what really matters. But, but, but if everything is going great for you, if you're facing no trials, if you're making no sacrifices, well, in one sense, it doesn't matter if Jesus is real or not. It's like, well, if he is real, great. I've got him as an insurance policy. But, but if he isn't, well, nothing lost. I've, I've got everything anyway. I'm not missing out on anything. It's a recipe for being what Jesus calls lukewarm. Lukewarm. It's a recipe for, for weak, half-hearted Christianity, the sort of Christianity that we see all around us in Australia, the sort of Christianity that is that is endemic to the north shore of Sydney. Christians grow through trials. Now, of course, this is, this is not to say that trials are good in themselves. It's not good when people get sick or die. It's not good when Christians face persecution or, or trouble for their faith. These things are not good in themselves. And, and we shouldn't... It's not like we should be praying for these things to happen. I mean, nowhere in the New Testament uh, are, we, are we encouraged to, to pray for trials, not for ourselves, not, not for anyone else. Trials are not good in themselves. But we trust that God is in control, even of our trials. We trust that he uses trials to make us more like Jesus. And so we're to be able to find joy in what our trials can do for us. But that's what, that's what James is saying to his readers. 
is calling on his readers to see their situation from an eternal perspective, to, to let their faith in Christ make them deal differently with the trials that they're facing. But if they lack the wisdom to do that, if they can't see their trials in an eternal perspective, if they can't work out how they could possibly find joy in them, well, James has got some advice. James says they should talk to God and they should ask God to give them the wisdom they need. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The, the reader should ask God for wisdom so that they can see their trials in an eternal context, so they can react differently, even joyfully. But James goes on to say they need to be genuine about these prayers. They need to, be, they need to really mean it. Verse 6, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, I don't think this means you can't have any doubts when you pray. We all have our doubts, of course. But what James is talking about here is you don't want to ask for something that you don't really want. Imagine, imagine you're facing some trial. You lose your job, uh, your marriage is really tough, you're facing some sickness... When that happens, what is it that you really want? Is the thing that you want most to grow as a Christian from this trial? Or do you just want it to go away? I know what I often want. I want it to go away. I might pray, dear God, please help me to grow as a Christian through this trial. But what I really mean is, dear God, please just take the trial away and let me have a comfortable life. And why? Well, if I'm honest with myself, here's the answer. It's because in my heart, I'd rather be happy than holy. I'd rather have an easy life, even if it makes me a flabby, half-hearted Christian, than have a hard life that makes me a strong Christian. My comfort here and now is more important to me than my maturity in Christ. I can see from what James says here that I really am quite double-minded about it. I don't just need to pray for wisdom, wisdom to, to see life from an eternal perspective. I even need to pray to, to, to want wisdom like that in the first place. Well, James goes on to talk more about the difference that Jesus makes to life. And again... Again, you see that believing in Jesus, it makes a massive difference. changes everything. James says, if these Christians are poor, they need to remember who they are in Christ. They need to see their poverty in the light of eternity. And in that light, they're not really poor. They are children of the King. They have eternal riches way beyond comparison with the stuff of this world. On the other hand, if, if these Christians are rich, again, they need to remember who they are in Christ. They're no better than anyone else. They're just hopeless sinners saved by the sheer mercy of God in Jesus, same as every other Christian. And, and all of their stuff, even their very life, all of these riches that they have, it, 
well, it's, it, it's Havel, to use that word from Ecclesiastes. It, it's, like, it's like a breath. As soon, it's going to be gone. Notice how everything changes. For, for Christians, everything changes about how they see life. Verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way where the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. And James then calls on his suffering readers to to stick with it, to, to persevere, to endure, to keep trusting Jesus, to keep living for Jesus, even through the trials, because he says sticking with Jesus, with Jesus will give you the one thing that will last, the one thing that goes on forever. It will give you the victor's crown, eternal life with Jesus. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. All right. Can, can you see what's here in this first part of James's letter? James is writing to Christian refugees. They're doing it tough. They've lost everything. But in the light of Jesus, he's calling them to be different, to see their situation, to see their life differently. Are, are they facing trials? Well, they need to see them as opportunities to persevere in Christ, to test the metal of their faith, to, to draw them near the, nearer to Jesus, ultimately to, to receive the crown of life that Jesus promises to those who love him. They should see their trials differently in Christ and even be able to rejoice in the opportunity that trials provide. Uh, are they poor? Well, they need to see the eternal riches that they have in Christ. Uh, are they rich? Well, they need to see that worldly wealth is nothing compared to eternity. Even this life itself is nothing compared to eternity. They need to know where their true riches lie. The readers, they need to view their lives from an eternal perspective. To, to realise that being mature in Christ, that's the goal. Having, having this crown of life, that's the goal. Not not having a comfortable life. And if they're finding that hard to do, if they're finding it hard to, to see life from an eternal perspective, to be different, what they need to do is pray. They need to ask God to give them the wisdom they need so they can live differently for the Lord Jesus. Okay. Well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. Friends, Friends, the big idea is this. If you genuinely believe in Jesus, it should make a difference. It should change everything. It should change, it should change the, the whole goal of your life, and so it should change the way that you live your life. Uh, earlier this week, I watched uh, part of a game of cricket with my boys, and uh, it, it was a, what they call a 20-20 match. In a 20-20 match, each team takes a turn bowling 120 times to the other team. And the team who gets the most runs, after they've each faced 120 bowls, the team who gets the most runs wins. Now, there are all kinds of tactics that teams employ in these games because they've got 10 batsmen who have to last for the 120 bowls, etc., etc. But, but this game was a bit different. Uh, the whole match turned on what the score was halfway through, after 60 bowls. Uh, the, the goal of the teams became different in this game. 
They needed to have the most runs after 60 bowls, not 120 bowls. And so because there was a different goal, the way they played the game, the way they played the game was totally different. Uh, the way the batters batted, um, the, the way the bowlers bowled, the tactics that the captains employed, it was all completely different because the goal had changed. Very interesting to watch. And, and I thought it, it, it illustrated what James is saying here. If God is real, the message about Jesus is true, it should change the goal of our lives. The, the most important Thing in our lives should be, verse 4, to be mature and complete in Christ. Or, or, or verse 12, the most important thing, the goal should be, verse 12, the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's the thing that will last forever. It's way more important than anything this world has to offer. And so that should be our goal. And if that's the goal, well, it should change the way we live. It should change the way we live our lives. A, a different goal should lead to a different life. Here in James, we see it particularly with, uh, with the trials that these readers are facing, with their suffering, with their poverty. And we also see it with wealth with suffering and with wealth. Having the goal of being mature in Christ, it should change the way we think about suffering. Are, are you suffering? Are you struggling with your health? Are you, are you in pain? Or are you struggling relationally? Are you struggling with, with singleness? Or are you struggling in a, in, in a difficult marriage? Are you struggling with, with children? Or maybe you're struggling with work or you've got financial stresses. Maybe you're facing some kind of persecution for being a Christian. Are you suffering? Of course, suffering is real. Sickness and poverty and relational breakdown and family tragedy and persecution, they're, they're all bad things. They're, they're symptoms of, of a world under the judgment of God. They're symptoms of a world in rebellion against God. Suffering, suffering makes life hard. It makes life uncomfortable. I don't want to downplay the significance of suffering, but, but friends, friends, what if ease and comfort is not the goal? What if having an easy life is not the thing we should be aiming for? What if the crown of life is the goal? It does change things, doesn't it? Because suffering does provide us with an opportunity, an opportunity to test the reality of our faith, an opportunity to do what is godly rather than what is comfortable, an opportunity to do what pleases Jesus rather than what pleases us, an opportunity to, to grow in our reliance on Jesus, to grow in our hope for heaven, an opportunity to, to move towards the best goal, to be mature and complete in Jesus. I was uh, recently dealing with a couple who are struggling in their marriage. Uh, they are, well, they're, they're making each other miserable. Uh, they, they went to see a counsellor. And the counsellor told them the best thing they could do would be to break up 
to end the marriage. I, a couple came to me and, and I said to them, well, what, what do you think of that advice? And they, they said this. They said, the thing about the counsellor, she's not a Christian. And so she's only thinking about what will make us happy, what will be good for our mental health, what will make us comfortable. Uh, but our goal is not to be happy. Our goal is to please Jesus. And we believe that Jesus is clear on this. We shouldn't break up. So we believe what we need to do is, well, work harder. Our different goal, it should make us react to suffering differently. And our different goal, it should also change the way we view our wealth. All, all the good stuff of this world, it's good. It's good. We can and, and we should enjoy the stuff of this life with, with thanks to the God who gives it. But friends, it's not forever. Soon it'll all be gone. Our health, our wealth, all the good stuff of this world that we enjoy, we're not going to take any of it with us. When we die, it'll all be gone. Just given to ungrateful heirs. And, and, and wealth, for all the good that it can bring, it, it does present a danger. Wealth can distract us from the true goal. Wealth can distract us from becoming mature and complete in Christ. Wealth can, can make us make bad, wrong, sinful decisions because we're pursuing it or wanting to hang on to it rather than to pursue the, the best goal of the crown of life. So friends, don't get too caught up in it all, will you? Keep the real goal in mind and, and be different. Friends, Jesus should make everything different. Not easy though, is it? Pain is still painful. Wealth is still very seductive. We do crave naturally comfort, joy, happiness rather than Christian maturity. I'm not saying any of this is going to come naturally and, and of course that's why James tells us to pray about it to pray for wisdom, to pray for wisdom to, to keep the true goal in mind, wisdom to, to live in the light of the true goal, wisdom to see our suffering and to see our wealth in view of eternity, wisdom to be different. Friends, the Lord has promised a crown of life to those who love him. That is the greatest goal. That's the ultimate goal. That's the eternal goal. That's the only goal truly worth living for. So friends, don't live as if there is no God. Don't be no different from those who don't believe in God. Be different. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus Christ offers those who love him a crown of eternal life. Please help us to, to make this our goal, to make living for Jesus, being mature and complete in him, the goal of our lives. And help us in the light of that goal to, to see our suffering and to see our, our trials and to see our wealth and our good things in the light of eternity. Give us wisdom to do this, we pray, so that we live for the Lord Jesus and strive towards the true and best goal. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.